Hello? Anybody home? Today, I want you to open your mind. I've almost come to the conclusion that the story is so damning that the mass of people can't deal with it. We are in process of developing a whole series of techniques to get people actually to love their servitude. We face a hostile ideology, global in scope, atheistic in character, ruthless in purpose and insidious in method. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence. To change the minds and the attitudes and the beliefs of the people of the world, especially the United States, to bring about one world socialist totalitarian government. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. It has patterned itself after every dictator who has ever planted the ripping imprint of a boot on the pages of history since the beginning of time. Brutes have risen to power, but they lie. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. If you can get people to consent to the state of affairs in which they are living, then you you have a much more easily controllable society than you would if you were relying wholly on clubs and firing squads and concentration camps. Tools of conquest do not necessarily come with bombs and explosions and fallout. There are weapons that are simply thoughts, attitudes, prejudices, to be found only in the minds of men. As you connect the dots between different people, organizations, places, religions, history, suddenly the picture starts to form. If you don't connect the dots. It's just a mass of what's all this about. The kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Someone born in the United States is not more special than someone born in Mexico. Someone who is white is not more special than someone who is black. They're just vehicles for the consciousness to experience. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. They do not want your children to be educated. They do not want you to think too much. It was learned that the aliens had been and were then manipulating masses of people through secret societies, witchcraft, magic, the occult, and religion. They reach into our children in music, television, books. Prey on children's innocence. How can I disprove lies that are stamped with an official seal? So if you have the opportunity to stand next to one of these machines, it feels like an altar to an alien god. Genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a kid that's found his dad's gun. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc is now in the possession of the Army. Too many others know what's happening out there, and no one, no government agency has jurisdiction over the truth. Any state, any entity, any ideology that fails to recognize the worth, the dignity, the rights of man, that state is obsolete. A case to be filed under M for Mankind in the Twilight Zone. About time some of you got acquainted with the real hard truth. It's the heart that says, I will not acquiesce. Broadcasting from the Sonoran Desert, I'm your host, Ryan Gable, and you are listening to The Secret Teachings Radio, Monday through Friday, 10 p.m. to midnight Pacific, right after Clyde Lewis and Ground Zero. Thank you for coming over to The Secret Teachings after Ground Zero tonight. We actually did a similar show to Clyde on Friday night. Tucson Lights was the name of that show. We talked about the UFO report out of Ukraine. 
So if you enjoyed Clyde's show tonight, check out our show at thesecretteachings.info or any radio or podcast player. You can listen to The Secret Teachings for free. If you want to get the ad-free version of the show, though, plus access to our montage archive, digital copies of my books and all of that and more, visit our website again, www.thesecretteachings.info and subscribe to the archive. If you do that, you keep us on air Monday through Friday. If you do that, you allow us to do the research and have the guests on that we do and bring you the content that we do every week, every month, and every year. rdgable at yahoo.com is the email if you'd like to contact us and social media, facebook.com forward slash the secret teachings and TST underscore underscore radio on Twitter. I don't really have to tell you that when you look around, look around your city, look around your town, look around your state. When you look around the news, mainstream news, alternative news, independent media, I think we have witnessed the legalization. And by legalization, I mean not necessarily something that is codified in law, but the legalization socially of criminal activity of all kinds, all sorts. And we've seen the criminalization, not through a system, not through a a law or statute, but we've seen the criminalization of legal and lawful activity. And again, it's not with laws, but it's with policies that make a law-abiding citizen more likely to be the victim of a violent crime or a lesser-than-violent crime. And in cities here like Tucson, Arizona, we have a very high crime rate compared to the rest of the country. It is a different kind of crime rate. A lot of it's property crime. A lot of it is not one-on-one face-to-face crime, people being mugged and robbed and things like that. But it's a high crime rate nonetheless. And part of the reason for that is because the city of Tucson, like a lot of other cities across the United States, have done away with prosecuting criminals. But it's not just done away with prosecuting criminals, and I've talked to several police here in the city that have confirmed this, but it's certain kinds of criminals, and it's certain types of criminal backgrounds, like people's ethnicity or their gender. Now, I'm not telling you this because I've watched mainstream media, and they've told me this. I'm not telling you this because Fox News or some other outlet told me this. I'm telling you this because I see it firsthand and I've, I've spoken to, I've talked to law enforcement officers who have also told me this. And this is a very similar thing to what I experienced when I lived in Rochester, New York. And I've told this story before. This is the kind of policy that was in place. Certain kinds of people are allowed to commit crimes and you are not allowed to defend yourself or your property from those crimes. Now, police officers, let's be fair. Police officers look at every individual case and they look at, I mean, usually they do every individual case and they look at every individual component of that case to determine who was the victim, who was the perpetrator and what what the consequence is going to be. Are they going to arrest that person? They're going to take that person to jail. But it's unfortunate because a lot of police are told not to arrest the person because if they get taken down to the uh, to the uh, the jail and they get booked, they're going to be put right back on the street immediately which is what we saw up in Portland. We saw prosecutors refusing to prosecute. We saw a Florida prosecutor. He was removed from office, suspended by the governor of Florida because he refused in writing to enforce the law. And uh, this creates, obviously, uh, a dangerous society for everybody. 
And that's that's a problem. Now, it's not a political problem in the sense that I'm this or I'm that or you're this or you're that, politically speaking. And as a result of your political views, this is a political issue and it's the other person's fault. Like if you're a Republican, it's a Democrat's fault. If you're a Democrat, it's the Republican's fault. That's not that's not what this is about. This has nothing to do with Democrats, Republicans or politics as, as you think you know them or as I think I know them. What it is, is the legalizing of criminal activity. It's the lawfulizing of criminal activity. And it's the criminalizing of legal lawful activity, not with laws, but by making everyday interactions, everyday things that we do, going out in public, going to the store, etc., more dangerous. And this flame is fanned by every kind of media that you can think of, independent media, mainstream media, fanning the flame to convince you that the world is actually much more dangerous, much more uh, potentially deadly than it really is. Now, we have crime rates across the United States that have actually fallen dramatically over the last 20 to 30 years. And since I've talked about this before and gone into the statistics, gone into the FBI, gone into the Department of Justice, other statistics, and we've looked at these in detail, I'm not going to do that again tonight. We have more to talk about. But as a quick overview, crime rates have statistically fallen dramatically across the United States since late 80s, early 90s. And the problem now is because of the so-called lockdowns, we had a lot of crimes that initially were not being committed, and we had a drop in crime. Now, this is where Republicans get in trouble. If we're going to make this a political issue, Republicans say crime rates are going up, 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 and the crime is getting worse. And that is true in some places. It is getting worse. But what is the context to getting worse? Because statistically, crime rates are still substantially below what they were in the 80s and 90s. However, there are isolated areas, parts of Chicago, parts of Los Angeles, parts of, uh, well, I mean, Portland, not even parts of just the whole city of Portland, where crime rates are going up above what they were before the so-called lockdowns. And that's where Democrats get in trouble because they deny that there's any criminal activity. And this is the same kind of thing that we've seen in other countries historically. We saw this in China in the late, uh, late 1940s, more so in the 1950s, where literally, if you were a criminal, criminal activity, rape, murder, theft, whatever, was legalized. It's not so much that they codified it in law. It's not that the CCP of China in the 50s said, okay, if you're a murderer, you can murder now. You can kill anybody you want. And the law is you're protected. They weren't basing it off of statutes or what was considered legal or lawful. They were basing it off of what one man and a handful of individuals around that man said. And that man said, purge. Kill your neighbor if he has more than you. Report your neighbor if he has more than you. Then kill your neighbor if he has more than you. Report your family. Report your friends. Target anybody who you think is a, well, in the case of China, a capitalist or a nationalist. And that includes people genetically. So if your family had genetic history, like say your parents, they had a different political view than the CCP of China in the 50s, they would target that, even if that individual was an ardent supporter of Mao, of the CCP, they would target that individual 
And they would often kill that individual as a symbol, as a signal to anybody else that your genetics made you as guilty as someone who had committed the crime of, say, plenty of stories of this, of a woman who couldn't afford to pay for food or for anything else. So she would make little trinkets out of things that she would find and try to sell them. Can't do that. That's capitalist behavior. So that woman has to be beaten near to death. So this is what happened in China as one example. It also happened in the Soviet Union. You can thank the Bolsheviks for that. And it's, allow, it's allowing, it's the allowance, again, of the legalization of criminal activity and the criminalization of legal lawful activity. And again, it's not with laws, but it's with making society more dangerous intentionally by pulling certain strings and by tying other strings, cutting some strings. It's like an orchestra. It's an organizational systemic system and process by which certain policies are put in place that are supposed to help people, but they actually make society more dangerous. And this is the thing that doesn't make any sense. When we heard about all the, the rioting across the United States, maybe you lived in a city where you, you had that rioting because of the George Floyd situation. It didn't matter when it came out that his throat was not crushed and that he had a heart attack and he also tested positive for COVID and he had enough fentanyl in the system to kill any other person on average. None of that mattered. What mattered was the video. It didn't even matter the 15 minutes before the video that was released where it shows the police being very accommodating to George Floyd. None of that mattered. What mattered was the emotional, hysterical, violent response. Now, some people went out and protested and held their signs because they they genuinely felt that it was unjust and they were not violent and they were not breaking things and burning buildings. To, to be fair, there were plenty of people who were doing that, but there were also agent provocateurs and there were also people that clearly were either paid or radicalized by mainstream media that went out and did things that were horrible and they made the peaceful people look like criminals. They made the peaceful people look like they were violent when they weren't. But then this was also fanned, this flame was fanned by the media that said these were peaceful protests, etc. You remember that from CNN with the burning buildings and they said this is a peaceful protest. I mean, it's literally like the movie The Purge. And even if it's not literally like the movie The Purge, it's at least symbolically like the movie The Purge. I mean, in some places, they're actually legalizing The Purge. Now, people say this politically speaking, so I don't want to take the talking point that some are using about this new law in Illinois. This new law in Illinois they're calling the SAFE-T Act, which will commence in January of 2023. And many counties in the state of Illinois are actually suing now because they say that this is not only unjust, this is going to basically criminalize legal lawful behavior and legalize criminal behavior. And it's going to allow criminals to basically run the streets, which they already are in a lot of places because prosecutors won't prosecute, police won't arrest because they've been given orders by the city council or by the mayor not to do that. So the Safety Act, this is almost unbelievable. There are 12 non-detainable offenses in this so-called Safety Act. 12 non-detainable offenses where the new law would end the cash bail entirely. These include... I'm not exaggerating. I'm not making this up. These include second-degree murder, arson, drug-induced homicide, robbery, kidnapping, aggravated battery, burglary, intimidation, aggravated driving under the influence, 
fleeing and eluding, drug offenses, and threatening a public official. These are non-detainable offenses in the state of Illinois once this law commences in 2023. Non-detainable offenses. These are the types of things that we saw with those riots and protests of George Floyd, if that's what it was supposed to be about anyway. We saw this kind of criminal activity. Not so much the second-degree murder, although a lot of people were either badly injured. Um, I remember living in Rochester, New York, and some guy was stabbed in the eye with glass by protesters. I don't think he was even in the protest, but he was stabbed in the eye by glass. I lost his eyesight. Uh, So people, you know, sometimes we think murder is the most horrible thing, but a lot of times murder might be almost merciful compared to the types of physical, bodily, and even mental uh, issues that are caused by this kind of violence. So these are non-detainable offenses in Illinois, and there are other states that are introducing the idea some states that are going to potentially introduce the legislation, if not already written and uh, introduced, I uh, haven't been able to find it yet, uh, in places like uh, Montana, which of all places, I wouldn't think Montana would, would do this, but Montana, of course, New York, of course, California, which really, I think, pioneered this. But remember, Illinois is not just a state. Illinois is home to Chicago, which has uh, basically uh, enshrined this policy as uh, as what they consider to be uh, uh, a more equal and just system where you have hundreds of people being shot every single week, but there are no um, legal parameters for which a law-abiding citizen should have a gun. However, a criminal can have a gun and, well, hundreds of people are shot every week. And the thing is, they're mostly black people that are shot. They're mostly quote, minority people, which in Chicago, if you're white, you're not a majority, you're a minority. Chicago, I mean, I guess depending on what part of Chicago, if you're talking about the city or the suburbs, but but in most cities, minorities are actually the majority. White people are actually the minority. And that's not splitting hairs. That's, That's an important piece of information that we should have when addressing these issues. So Chicago basically is exporting their policies to the state level. So again, these are non-detainable offenses. This is the legalizing of criminal activity. Now, I will not debate because I will agree with you if you have this opinion that there needs to be massive justice system reform. I agree with that. But I also agree that there needs to be reform in a lot of other places within our um, legal system, within our judicial system, uh, within... uh, The system of government uh, in terms of term limits, for example, I think there needs to be a lot of reform in a lot of places. But the issue of reform in some places, which sounds logical, which sounds reasonable, if you want to discuss it, you want to debate it, is being hijacked and exploited by people that don't want there to be a rule of law at all. And they want this to be the normal because it empowers them when people feel less safe and when society is more dangerous. But we have to remember that crime rates statistically are still down. It's usually in places like Chicago where you have the higher rates of crime and you have higher rates of crime in context with things like lockdowns, which you know during the so-called lockdowns, crime plummeted. And then when it came back up to normal levels, people said crime was skyrocketing. It wasn't. But in places like Chicago, it actually is above those or at those or above those levels, depending on the place that you're looking in Chicago. 
or in Illinois in general, uh, above those levels uh, that we saw back during the so-called lockdowns. And that's the case across the rest of the country. Uh, Mostly crime is plateaued. Mostly crime is lower than it has been in years. In some places, it's actually higher above when we we add the context above what it was in regard to the lockdown. So that's an important thing to remember. And we have to, along with that, politically remember that Republicans are spreading the myth that a lot of places are more dangerous when they're actually as dangerous as they were two to three years ago. And Democrats are doing, I would argue, uh, a, a greater injustice by telling people that there's no crime whatsoever. It's all a myth. It's all made up. It's all made up. And this was this is actually a well, I mean, I, I don't even want to say it's a Marxist tactic. This is just maybe a tactic of the delusional. You know, when the Sons of Liberty, this uh, so-called secret society, they were um, uh, known to be quite violent. When the Sons of Liberty were uh, rioting or protesting, and don't let the name fool you, when the Sons of Liberty were out rioting or protesting, uh, they were looked at by the Democratic Party um, later, because they, they were founded uh, much, much, much earlier, uh, but they proceeded under different organizations into the 1800s. They were founded in 1765, supposedly dissolved in 1776. But the Sons of Liberty as an organization, very similar organizations grew out of them into the 1800s. And the Democratic Party founded in 1828 said that these types of groups like the Sons of Liberty of the earlier century, these types of groups just, just they don't they don't exist. They don't exist. They are uh, figments of the imagination. They are myths. And that is something that we've seen for hundreds of years. People have used that kind of an argument to just dismiss that there is any kind of violence that's organized or that's political. If it's, you know, of course, your political party that might be involved with it. So when all else fails to convince the public that these violent or racist whatever groups uh, are committing havoc or committing crimes, just deny that they exist. This is also, remember what uh, Gerald uh, Nadler, the Democrat from New York, said about Antifa. He said it was, quote, a myth, which is very similar to the ideas of Clement Vallendigham, who was a prominent Democrat in the 1800s, who said that the pro-slavery Sons of Liberty were simply, quote, a fiction. So you just deny that anything is even happening. Deny that there are criminal groups deny that, um, you know, you're not uh, or you're actively engaged and not enforcing the law. Uh, Deny that you're actively engaged in promoting and incentivizing criminal behavior. This this is this becomes more about psychology than it does about criminal behavior or what is considered legal or lawful. It becomes more about psychology and it becomes regardless of what your political views are. It becomes about fear. It becomes about false emotion, which we perceive as as real. False emotion appearing as real, I believe, is the the David Icke uh, acronym for fear. False emotion appearing as real. And that's what this is all about. This is about making you feel more unsafe. This is about allowing criminals to run the streets. So it's true that criminal activity does increase and they incentivize the criminal activity. 
But the context that we're usually missing is, even though that's being incentivized, it's almost, in a sense, in the case of Illinois, it's being codified, it's being put into law. Generally speaking, life is not as dangerous as we perceive it to be. So we have to balance this reality against the political things we hear and against what we also experience. I mean, I, I give you a great example. Uh, when I lived in Boise, Idaho, back in 2015, 16, I lived there for th- four years. And uh, when I lived in Boise, Idaho, it's supposed to be one of the safest places in the country. I never experienced anything living anywhere else like the criminal activity I experienced in Boise. That was my perception. And that was also my experience, people breaking into my, my apartment or trying to, people stealing my, my bike, people trying to rob me on the streets. This was my experience. So for me, Boise was one of the most dangerous places I ever lived. The crime rate here in Tucson is much higher, but I've never actually experienced that kind of crime. So a lot of this is about your perception of reality. A lot of this is about where you live, not so much about your political views, not so much about what news station you watch, but the idea, the psychological component and element to this, once again, is the legalizing of criminal activity and the criminalizing of legal lawful activity. Now, we're going to have to take a break here in a second, but before we do that, I want to let you know that when we come back from break, I'm going to get into and break down this Safety Act, and then we're going to look at how the policy of the Safety Act, the law, and how the ideas behind it, the ideologies behind it, filter into other things like home buying, for an example. Uh, There's an unbelievable story from about two weeks ago. Bank of America and others are offering zero-down mortgages for minorities. Now, they say that if you're white, you can still get this zero-down mortgage, and there's other perks as well. But they're targeting black and Hispanic communities, saying black and Hispanic communities just don't have any money. They're just inherently poor. So we, the rich bankers, have to take care of these poor black people. And what's amazing, what's astounding about that is, if you study the practice of slavery, whether that's the Atlantic slave trade or the Saharan slave trade, Middle Eastern, uh, Arab slave trade, Asian slave trade, it was always the big corporations and the big, wealthy, powerful bankers that ran the operation. And we're seeing a revitalizing, a regeneration of these historical atrocities that man committed against other men, and by men I mean mankind, and they're being reintroduced today under the guise of equality and justice. It's really amazing, the psychology of all of this. We're going to talk about that and more when we come back from break. I'm Ryan Gable. This is The Secret Teachings. More after this. Stay with us. The Secret Teachings radio show is on Facebook and Twitter. Just search facebook.com forward slash The Secret Teachings to like us and TST underscore underscore radio to tweet with us. I hope that you'll check out my new book, Liberty Shrugged. I wrote Liberty Shrugged to provide historical context and to dispel many of the myths that we learn about in American history. Inside the nearly 700-page book, you'll learn about meritocracy, the differences between civil liberties and civil rights, and how Western civilization didn't start slavery, but ended it as an institution that had existed for thousands of years. How many of the founding fathers did indeed own slaves, but what was peculiar about this was that these men would fight to end the institution for a variety of reasons. 
We look at the real causes of the American Revolution and the American Civil War. We prove without a doubt that slavery was in no way, shape, or form the cause of current socioeconomic issues which affect all people regardless of their color. In other words, this book dispels countless divisive social, cultural, and historical myths in an attempt to objectively find humble gratefulness in the American experience. Get your copy of Liberty Shrugged at thesecretteachings.info in softcover or digital. This is David Icke from davidike.com, and you are listening to The Secret Teachings with Ryan Gable. From Ground Zero to The Secret Teachings, keep your dial tuned to Ground Zero Radio. Want to hear more of The Secret Teachings radio show? Search for the show on any radio or podcast player, or find links and a free archive at thesecretteachings.info. If you want to get rid of those annoying ads and get extra perks like access to the montage archive, digital copies of Ryan's books, and early access to the show, then subscribe to the full show archive at thesecretteachings.info. Visit the website and click the button that says subscribe. You can do so monthly, yearly, or through a one-time donation. Your support always keeps the secret teachings on the air. If you enjoy the secret teachings and want to hold years of Ryan's research in your hands, visit the website and grab a physical and digital copy of Ryan's books. Occult Arcana will introduce you to sacred myths, folklore, magic, and alchemy. The technological elixir will take you from transhumanism and AI to black goo and UFOs. Food philosophy will change your mind about what we call food, germ theory, and geoengineering. And remember, shipping is always included. Some restrictions exist for international. Visit thesecretteachings.info. This is one of the best discussions I've been on in a long time. You guys are right on it. Howdy, this is Joe Mars, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings. Attention, you are tuned into restricted airspace. Tune out immediately. This is the frequency of The Secret Teachings on Ground Zero Radio. This is a live sound from Illinois tonight. I'm just joking. This is obviously from the movie The Purge. A lot of people are saying that the Safety Act in the state of Illinois, which takes effect, which commences in January of 2023, is going to be like the movie The Purge. But obviously, let's be fair, I don't necessarily agree with the act, but the act is also hundreds of pages And I doubt that anybody who is a Republican who is saying that this is a purged law has actually read all of the pages of this bill. The copy that I have is 764 pages long. I would doubt, I do doubt, that anybody who is a Democrat has read all the pages of this law. And yet we have daily and nightly debates and discussions, and it becomes popular on social media to refer to this as the purge law when most of the people that are talking about it have never actually read the entire thing. I've not read it. I don't have time to read 764 pages of a law in a state that I don't live in. That's supposed to be what your congressmen do. That's supposed to be what your senators do. That's supposed to be what your governor does. That's supposed to be what, well, you do if you live in that state and you're going to vote for the people that are promoting this. What we do know, however, it's a huge bill. 
What we do know is that the Safety Act will commence on January 1st of 2023. Illinois is looking to be the first state to entirely abolish the cash bail system. Now, for those of you who don't know, cash bail allows people with financial means to purchase their freedom, which is kind of ironic, while those without cash remain incarcerated. That's, of course, according to, if you look at the terminology they select, the American Civil Liberties Union, which is anything anything and everything but about American civil liberties. So cash bail allows people with money to purchase their freedom, the ACLU says. And I'm referencing them because I want to be fair and balanced in terms of how I'm approaching this. And while those without cash remain incarcerated. And so when you post the bail, you get out and then it's supposed to, it's supposed to make you, um, it's supposed to encourage you, make you go back to court for your court date. And then when you've done that, you get the money back. That's, that's supposed to be what is happening. Now, the solution to perhaps the uh, solving of a, if there is a problem with this system, um, I'm not even really going to take a stance on it per se, but if there's a problem with this system and it's allowing wealthy people to get out and maybe they don't even care about the money, maybe they don't come back to court, maybe they do, and it's preventing poorer people from getting out on bail and they're in prison longer and, and all that, then maybe we could reform the system of cash bail rather than just abolish it. And this is unfortunately the problem that we have uh, politically with everything. If we don't like something, we just totally and absolutely eliminate it. Now, I'm not saying that that might not be a good idea, but I'm saying it's, it's a very irrational, emotional, political response to something that if we don't do the exact opposite, then we're not helping. Now, there could be ways to, to solve this problem. There could be ways to fix this problem. I'm not a congressman. I'm not a senator. So I don't know. I'm not taking the time to sit down and find out a new issue, a new solution to this issue. And this is in Illinois. So I'm not in Illinois. I don't live in Illinois. I don't even, I don't even like Illinois as a state. I, like I've, been, I've been through there. I just It's not my cup of tea, as they say. So this is not my fight, but I'm also concerned about it because this could be exported as it has been from Chicago to Illinois, and this could be exported to your state or to my state. In fact, Pima County here where I'm living in Tucson back in a couple months ago, this back in uh, January earlier this year, Pima County uh, supervisors voted to support an amendment to the Arizona Constitution that aims to ban cash bail statewide. The amendment, which is proposed in a new state law called House Concurrent Resolution 2022, was introduced by a bipartisan group of Arizona lawmakers earlier this year in January. So even here in Arizona, they want to eliminate the cash bail system. So this is why I'm concerned with it, even though I don't live in Illinois. Now, there might be better ways to deal with with this cash bail system, maybe we could reform it itself instead of simply abolishing it. See, this is going to allow for people that commit crimes, and it's explicit in the bill, people who commit crimes to not have to sit in jail. And it's not like there isn't some level of, let's call it uh, rationale about the bill, 
Uh, there isn't some level of structure to the bill. It doesn't just say, okay, everybody can do whatever they want and there's no consequences. That's what a lot of people on the right want you to think. There are 12 non-detainable offenses that this law allows for. So you cannot be detained and kept detained for any length or period of time exceeding, I believe it is 48 hours. So you have, they have basically have 48 hours, something to that effect. I think it was 48 hours to find evidence against you to be able to hold you longer. So it's not that they're just letting every criminal back out, but, but then again, 48 hours, even 72 hours, isn't a lot of time to collect all of the, the information that you might need to keep this potentially dangerous, likely dangerous person in prison. So 12 non-detainable offenses, they include second-degree murder, they include arson, drug-induced uh, homicide, robbery, kidnapping, aggravated battery, burglary, intimidation, aggravated driving under the influence, fleeing and eluding, drug offenses, and threatening a public official. The Safety Act would allow criminals a pretrial release for the crimes listed above. And if prosecutors fail to show, quote, clear and convincing evidence, end quote, that the alleged could be a threat to a specific individual, well, they can just go. They have 48 hours to decide, the prosecutors do, whether the alleged criminal should be released. Investigators believe the 48 hours isn't enough, though, because it doesn't give them enough time to collect evidence, surveillance cameras, lab work, forensic research, etc. See, this is the problem. It masquerades as rational. Well, you got 48 hours to see if this guy who stabbed a bunch of people at the gas station is actually guilty. You could probably get the gas station video right away and you can probably get some, you know, you got some evidence there. But it's a very short window of time. So it essentially ensures that if you commit a crime, one of these crimes listed under the law, you're probably not going to have to sit in jail. And if you don't have to sit in jail and you get a pretrial release, what are the chances that you're actually going to come back for the, tri- for the trial? This is part of the catch and release program that we've had operating at the southern border. You just detain them, let them go. And then I don't know what the statistic is, but it's, it's a pretty large number. And I would, I'm assuming it also varies per, I guess, different parts of, of the southern part of the United States you know, Arizona, Texas, et cetera, because different states handle this differently as well. How many people actually come back for their court date? They just get absorbed into, into the country itself. So they just sort of disappear. So 48 hours is not a lot of time. And if you're eliminating the cash bail system and you're giving these criminals who commit these offenses, someone who, who commits second degree murder gets a free get out of jail free card and a pretrial release. Prosecutors only have 48 hours to build a case big enough, strong enough to keep them for any amount of time. In other words, this is the policy that has been enacted in places like Rochester, where I've lived and in places like Tucson, where police don't even bother arresting people because prosecutors refuse to prosecute them because the mayor and the, and the, the mayor's office, the, uh, the city council refuse to enforce the rule of law, period. This is just the legalizing of criminal activity and criminal behavior. You would think that there could be a better solution to reforming the cash bail system. See, it's this idea, though, 
that you have rich people, they always get off. And rich people, eh, they might tend to get off. But at the same time, we have to consider this. What is the incentive? Where is the incentive? There has to be an incentive. Otherwise, you're just allowing criminals to commit crimes, and then you're putting them back on the street, and then they do the crimes and continue to do what they were doing that got them arrested in the first place. So then this de-incentivizes police to even arrest people, because what's the point? You're going to book them, you're going to fingerprint them, and then you're going to drop them back off where you picked them up. It doesn't make any sense. That incentivizes crime, and it de-incentivizes law enforcement. That's what this is all about. It's not about making life easier for criminals who are minorities, as if that even makes any sense, which is what they're saying. We'll get to that in just a second. It's about incentivizing crime, and it's about de-incentivizing law enforcement. It's another way to defund the police under the guise of helping racial minorities. But see, that's really the, that's really the kicker there, isn't it? Because they're saying that this is disproportionately affecting poor people. That's what the ACLU says. Rich people, they can buy their freedoms. But poor people can't. Now, there are plenty of rich people and there are plenty of poor people. And they come in a variety of shapes and sizes and colors and ethnicities and sexual preferences. I mean, look at Stephon Curry. Look at LeBron James. These guys make a lot of money, don't they? In fact, when I was at the gym the other day, they had a they had Sports Center on or ESPN or something, whatever it is now. I don't watch it, but I glanced up at the screen and they had Stefan Curry up there. And I, I, I don't really like sports anymore, but I, I'll watch hockey and I, I, I kind of like Stefan Curry because although I'm not a Christian, he's a Christian. He seems like a good guy. So I'm watching this, this, this little uh, clip of Stefan Curry playing basketball and I couldn't hear it because they didn't have the sound on. But underneath of it, they had this little scroller bar and it said, is, is Curry worth a billion dollars? A billion dollars. I mean, LeBron James has hundreds of millions of dollars. These are are black people that are making it very well in America. And people like LeBron James who then choose to lecture the rest of the country on equality, uh, on on social justice, etc. Likewise, there are plenty of people that are, well, pretty poor. Like, I guess... You look at me and think I'm white, although I have a uh, ancestry of uh, a Blackfoot Native American and, and others. But if you look at me and you consider me to be white, okay, um, I live on very little. I've always lived on very little. Part of it's by choice. Part of it's just because, you know, the radio as a field is not as lucrative as you might think. So I live on very little. So it's the assumption that poor people look and act a certain way. And it's not, generally speaking, because this new law in Illinois looks at minorities in particular. That's what it's all about. Three out of five people, they say, are in jail and they have not committed or been convicted of a crime that can be proven. So it's just assumed, okay, they committed the crime. They've not been convicted. So until you're convicted, you're guilty until proven innocent. That's about half a million people, it's estimated, across the United States that have not been convicted of a crime that are in jail. But when you break that down by state, it's obviously half a million, 500,000 divided by 50, 
you have a much smaller number in states like Illinois if you divide it equally among the states. So they're saying they want to basically decriminalize those types of activities like second-degree murder, robbery, kidnapping, aggravated battery, so that there's no incentive for you to actually show up for your court date. You just get released automatically, which again, de-incentivizes law enforcement, incentivizes criminal behavior, legalizes criminal activity, and criminalizes legal lawful activity because it makes society more dangerous for people that are following the law and who are not criminals. And the Centers for American Progress believes that the cash bail system, just like the ACLU says, criminalizes poverty. And then they say, this system mostly affects communities of color who already have the odds stacked against them across the country. See, this is where we need a little bit of historical context to understand what they're actually saying. And this isn't some secret code. It's directly, blatantly, brazenly on the surface. The Center for American Progress, like the ACLU, says that cash bail... And I'm not defending cash bail, nor am I uh, offending it. This is what they're saying. They say it criminalizes poverty. The system mostly affects communities of color who are already at odds when they're born. Think about that for a second. It might sound progressive. It might sound ooh, liberal. Ooh. But what is it actually saying? What is the American Civil Liberties Union saying? What is the... Center for American Progress saying they're saying that rich people can buy their freedom, poor people cannot, which is kind of ironic considering their politics and their progressive views, because even people like Frederick Douglass, who was a slave, he was able to actually buy his freedom. So I find that to be dramatically hilarious. But if you're assuming that people of color already have the odds stacked against them at birth, and that this system criminalizes their poverty, what are you actually saying? Can we translate that? Because what you're actually saying, whether the ACLU or the Center for American Progress, you're actually saying that black people or minorities, anybody who's not white, you're saying all those people, but specifically blacks, you're saying those black people are inherently poor, they're inherently criminal, they're inherently uneducated, they're inherently unable to fit into society, They're inherently isolated and segregated. What you're saying is that despite the fact that you claim that you are working and trying to help these people, you are creating a cultural image of these so-called minority groups by pre-assuming before they're even born. You're just predetermining that those people are going to be engaged in criminal activity that they are going to be poor, that they will not have the money to be able to bail themselves out if they commit a crime or they're arrested for committing a crime, whether they're guilty or not. See, that, ladies and gentlemen, is systemic racism. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a systemic process of discrimination. Now, again, cash bail, you want to argue it, you want to debate it, that's not what I'm here to do tonight. But when the ACLU says that cash bail allows rich people, i.e. white people, totally not true, to get out of jail free, and it allows poor people 
to have to sit in a jail cell, whether they've been convicted of a crime or not. And the Center for American Progress says the cash bail system criminalizes poverty. That's a quote. That this cash bail system across the United States is, quote, criminalizing poverty. And that this criminalization of poverty affects communities of color. We have an amazing and an incredible and a disturbing acknowledgement of the ideology that these people have, that these people believe in, that these people put their faith in. They are saying that black people are inherently poor, that black people inherently are committing crimes at higher rates, and that black people need to have white people at the ACLU or at the Center for American Progress to take care of them because they're just uneducated animals. This is literally the ideology of slave owners and mostly Democrats in the 1800s in particular. You look at the antebellum era, pre-Civil War, this is precisely the ideology of the Democratic Party, which was founded in 1828. Now, Obviously, the Democratic Party is different today. That's not the point of tonight's show. What I'm saying is this is the same ideology. This is the same thing that Democrats and others, wealthy landowners who had slaves, this is what they believed. They believed that black people inherently were inferior. Now, this is where history gets really interesting because they based the justification for slavery on race. Prior, however, to the Western renaissance of let's end the institution of slavery because it's wrong, where religious and cultural and social and moral issues became became uh, uh, the forefront of the conversation. It had never been questioned before. Slavery had never been questioned, especially on a moral ground. Everybody was enslaved. White people were enslaved by Africans. Africans were enslaved by white people. Asians enslaved. Everybody was enslaved or enslaved others. The Christians said it was okay to enslave Muslims and Jews. The Jews said it was okay to enslave Christians and Muslims. The Muslims said it was okay to enslave Christians and Jews. It, it doesn't matter how you break it down. Racism only became the foundation of slavery as a last-ditch effort to justify the institution which was flailing and in, the, in its death throes. And this is the same ideology today that was present then in the 1800s. The justification that, well, we're going to maintain slaves because they're inherently poor, they're inherently uneducated. You've created a system where they've become inherently poor and inherently uneducated. But then you say, because they're uneducated, because they're, un, they're, they're, they're poor, we have to maintain this system, which is what uh, uh, John C. Calhoun said. He said this was a system of, of, of uh, positive good. System of positive good because, well, these people, these black people in particular, were just ignorant. They were stupid. They were animals. They were uneducated. And they needed the white man to take care of them. This is what the ACLU is saying today. Again, that cash bail thing, that's kind of a separate issue, really. The ACLU and the Center for American Progress are saying that black people inherently commit more crimes. They inherently are uneducated, which usually leads to committing more crimes. And they don't address the reason that black people or other minority groups tend to be included in statistical data that show them committing way more crimes 
than any other group. It's because the black community has been decimated. The family unit has been decimated. Now, it's even perhaps more interesting, to me anyway, we say that slavery was the responsible historical fact for the reason that there's so many socioeconomic issues in black communities today. Problem with that is, right, and we know this from even mainline history, right after slavery was ended officially, although it continued under different kinds of uh, uh, justifications such as uh, apprenticeship, we saw that black people searched for their families. We saw that former slaves tried to reunite with their husbands, their wives, their children, etc. And all throughout the early 20th century, a lot of communities, black communities, actually had higher marriage rates than even white communities based on the, the number of people in the community. So that's a generation, or not even, not even a generation, that is literally like immediately after the institution of slavery was ended, ended and it was uh, roughly a generation, even two or three generations after slavery, the black community and the black family was incredibly strong in comparison even with the white family. And yet something changed after the 1960s where the black family began to disintegrate. So it took 100 years for that to happen. It took 100 years for black folks to, to lose the, the, the sense of community and family. But right after slavery, even some of the people that had actually been slaves, they were okay. They actually had, a, on average, a higher marriage rate than white people. That doesn't make a lot of sense. But they don't want to talk about that. They just want to create this cultural image, this caricature. They want to create this, this, this very offensive idol that black people are inherently this or that. And that the ACLU and the Center for American Progress are here to help them. Which is basically what John C. Calhoun said. He said that slavery was a positive good. You're uneducated. You might commit crimes. You are just inherently less than me as a white person, real white supremacy. But that was also a failed attempt to justify an institution which was on its way out. It was not the basis for the institution. So as this system progressed through the 1800s and slavery eventually was eliminated, which by the way, Western civilization ended slavery. It did not start it. It ended it. Colonialism and imperialism, despite what you might think, are actually responsible for ending slavery. They never tell you about what was happening in the Middle East. They never tell you about what was happening in Asia, what was happening in Africa. Never tell you about any of that. Or how the British, the French, and, and the United States sent warships to the west coast of Africa to patrol for slave boats, and they actually would, uh, they would try to free the slaves from those boats. A lot of times, uh, the pirates would just kill the slaves so they wouldn't be captured and caught, and then they would flee. They don't tell you about that history. They want you to think that Black folks, minorities, anybody who's not white, they are inherently uneducated, poor, and commit, and, 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 the, and the, they are the um, perpetrators of most crimes. And even though that last part is statistically true, what is the reason for it? It's because of the same ACLU, the Center for American Progress, political progressivism that was behind, ideologically, behind the institution of slavery and justifying the institution of slavery with racism. The same ideology is alive and well today in modern progressivism. And that's not Democrats, by the way. That's modern progressivism, which is basically hiding the fact that they're wearing clan hoods, hiding the fact that they are ready 
to literally enslave those people once again in the traditional fashion that you might see in a Hollywood movie. And that's not my opinion, because if you look onto the website of Senator uh, Markey and uh, representative of of New York, uh, Ocasio-Cortez, they have introduced a bill in the Congress called Civilian Climate Corps for Jobs and Justice Act, which they say they want to take minorities and make them work to build infrastructure for the Democratic Party and for their climate change initiatives. It's literally there on the website. And then they've actually crammed that into the Inflation Reduction Act, and that's actually a part of that act. So this whole thing about the purge law, this is actually about legalizing criminal activity, criminalizing legal lawful activity, not with laws, but by making life more dangerous, or at least making you perceive life as more dangerous, incentivizing crime, de-incentivizing law enforcement, and positioning largely, funny enough, largely white-run groups with taking care of the poor, uneducated, criminal, black underclass. Think about that as we go to break. I'm Ryan Gable. This is The Secret Teachings. TheSecretTeachings.info is the website. A lot more after this. Don't go anywhere. People ask me all the time what they can do to take control of their lives when facing a daily onslaught of dis and misinformation. I say take control of your body and mind with water filtration. Visit www.thesecretteachings.info and click on our affiliate sponsor link with Pro One Water Filters at the top of the page to search for a water filter for the home, camping trip, and even the shower. They filter countless contaminants and make a wonderful gift for friends, family, and yourself. That's Pro One Water Filters at thesecretteachings.info. I hope that you'll check out my new book, Liberty Shrugged. I wrote Liberty Shrugged to provide historical context and to dispel many of the myths that we learn about in American history. Inside the nearly 700-page book, you'll learn about meritocracy, the differences between civil liberties and civil rights, and how Western civilization didn't start slavery, but ended it as an institution that had existed for thousands of years. How many of the Founding Fathers did indeed own slaves, but what was peculiar about this was that these men would fight to end the institution for a variety of reasons. We look at the real causes of the American Revolution and the American Civil War. We prove without a doubt that slavery was in no way, shape, or form the cause of current socioeconomic issues which affect all people regardless of their color. In other words, this book dispels countless divisive social, cultural, and historical myths in an attempt to objectively find humble gratefulness in the American experience. Get your copy of Liberty Shrugged at thesecretteachings.info in softcover or digital. The Secret Teachings radio show is on Facebook and Twitter. Just search facebook.com forward slash The Secret Teachings to like us and TST underscore underscore radio to tweet with us. Do you like The Secret Teachings and Ryan's passionately balanced approach to subjects from food and health to the entertainment industry and the occult? Then check out Ryan's books, available in PDF and softcover with free shipping in the United States. For a deeper look into artificial intelligence, UFO cults, black goo, and packs made with the devil in the music and entertainment industry, have a look at the technological elixir. Or look for Ryan's masterpiece, Occult Arcana, an encyclopedia of occult knowledge spanning from mythology and science to symbols and sigils, from ritual magic to voodoo, and from comparative religion and psychic abilities to paranormal activity. Just visit thesecretteachings.info. Hello, folks. This is Jordan Maxwell 
and you're listening to The Secret Teachings. Excellent shows. Keep listening with your host, Ryan Gable. Think about your hero when you're at ground zero and crawl out to the fall out back to me. Attention, you are tuned into restricted airspace. Tune out immediately. This is the frequency of the secret teachings on Ground Zero Radio. Welcome back to The Secret Teachings. I'm your host, Ryan Gable. Thank you for joining us. Monday through Friday, you can catch the show 10 p.m. to midnight Pacific, right after Clyde Lewis and Ground Zero ends. I want to thank all of you for listening to The Secret Teachings after Ground Zero, especially if you've never heard the show before. Thank you for sticking with us. Also, Clyde's show tonight about the UAPs in Ukraine. If you want to hear our take on that, we did a show on that on Friday last week called Tucson Lights, the Tucson Lights, like the Phoenix Lights, but the Tucson Lights, here where I am in Tucson, Arizona. That show is in the archive at www.thesecretteachings.info. You can listen for free, or if you'd like to get access to the ad-free version of the show, a private RSS feed, our montage archive, and my digital books, you can subscribe at thesecretteachings.info. Pretty simple. Our website is very, very simple, very easy to use. If you have any questions, though, rdgable at yahoo.com that's rdgable at yahoo.com reach out to us there or on tst underscore underscore radio on twitter facebook.com forward slash the secret teachings i read a really interesting tweet that i want to share with you it comes from kalisa wing department of defense education activity chief of diversity equity and inclusion She's an officer of all these things. Kind of want to read that again. She is an officer of the Department of Defense Education Activity Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer. That's big, big mouthful. Kalissa Wing says this, I am so exhausted at these white folks, spelling it F-O-L-X, in these PD sessions, this lady actually had the caudacity, Caucasian-dacity, not audacity, the caudacity, to say that black people can be racist too. I had to stop the session and give Karen the quote, business, all capital letters. We are not the majority. We don't have power. I want to read that last sentence to you again as well. We are not the majority. We don't have power. If you've ever thought for just a moment about American history. If you've ever thought for just a moment about world history, the history of human civilization, of cultural and social developments, you would know that black people, white people, Asian people, you name it, have killed each other. They have killed themselves. They have enslaved each other, enslaved themselves all throughout the world, all throughout human history. You'd also know that it was Western civilization, colonialism, and imperialism, which certainly were involved in horrendous atrocities. But it were these things 
was these things that were responsible for the ending of the institution of slavery. You'd also know that racism was only a last-ditch death-throw effort to justify the institution of slavery in the southern United States in particular. You'd also know that black people that were living in the north in particular were much more educated. And when black folks from the south migrated to the north, black people from the south committed crimes at a rate that was, in some cases, five times higher than the black or white folks who already lived in the North. Part of the reason for this is a general lack of education, a general lack of civility, and the same was said and is true and is factually, without a doubt, provable that white people also coming from the South to the North were likewise segregated were likewise looked down upon. It wasn't because they were white or because they were black. It was because they had a culture that was, generally speaking, considered uncivil, unsocial, and incompatible with Northern society. A lot of black communities in the North didn't want black people from the South coming there. Southern attitudes, generally speaking, because I'm, I'm from the state of Florida. I'm from the South. But this South today is obviously different than the South back then. I get that. But what I'm saying is the Southern culture that came to the North, they didn't like that too much because people were more crass. They were vulgar, sexual promiscuity, and all the things that we would attribute to poor, impoverished people, uh, what we consider today to be drug use, an inability to really function in a civil society. These were all things that blacks and whites and others in the South were either convicted of in the public mind in the North or they were uh, guilty of because that was the culture that they bring. Now, again, you would also know that that culture is not a black culture. That culture actually comes from parts of Scotland, parts of Ireland. It also comes from the outskirts of civil society in England. So it comes from different parts of what we call today the United Kingdom. And the people that migrated mostly to the South, white people migrated to the South from those outer regions of England, Scotland, and uh, different places. I mean, all, all, all over what we call the UK today. Um, these were people of the country. These were people that generally w were less educated. And they were talking about white people now. These were less educated people. They were more prone to violence. This was the culture. And this is not a, a debatable thing. This was the culture of that area. Black people adopted that culture, but that culture was more of a white culture. And the thing is, what we consider today to be, quote, black culture is not only not black culture, it's actually white culture. But that culture that so many people say is something that white people should not, they shouldn't, uh, appropriate black culture. Actually, the black communities in those days appropriated white culture because that was the, that was the culture at the time, the dominant culture. And this, this whole idea that black people are XYZ is based on a white culture. It's unbelievable, based on a white culture. And it is something today promoted as a counterproductive cultural um, ideology of communities of color in particular, 
that as a result of this counterproductive culture tend to be poorer, tend to be less educated, tend to be prone to violence, tend to be prone to committing acts of uh, criminal activity. Now, this is not something that, again, is about, uh, it's not to me anyway, it's not really about white or black. It's about cultural elements. And it's about how we have, we have allowed certain cultural elements to become the image of certain cultures and certain groups to then justify the activities of certain white groups. My example would be modern progressivism has for over a century, they have created a cultural norm for black communities in which law enforcement is lax, in which the welfare state dominates, in which those poor communities are beholden to the white progressives that run most of those, most of those cities, the inner cities, the ghettos, etc. And that is based, again, on a culture, not on a race. It's based on a culture that includes white people as well. So when the state of Illinois, when Illinois says, we're going to pass a law that basically decriminalizes these 12 offenses, 12 non-detainable offenses that include second-degree murder, arson, robbery, drug-induced homicide, burglary, aggravated battery, kidnapping, intimidation, aggravated driving under the influence, fleeing and eluding, drug offenses, and the threatening of a public official. If you are arrested for these things, they're going to take the handcuffs off immediately. The Safety Act allows criminals to have a pretrial release for any of these crimes. Second-degree murder, drug-induced homicide, kidnapping, aggravated battery. You have pretrial release. You don't have to post bail. Now, even if there's an issue with the cash bail system, we could argue that, but that's not the point of the show. The point is to look at pretrial release right now. And what does pretrial release ensure? It ensures that there's no incentive for these people who commit these crimes to show up for their court date. It prevents prosecutors from having adequate time. They have 48 hours to decide if that person should be released and to provide evidence that would ensure that they are held. Now, without evidence, they don't need to pass a law for this. Without evidence, you generally can't hold somebody for more than 48 to 72 hours. This law makes it even less. It's 72 hours. This law makes it 48 hours to find enough evidence to hold them if you believe that that evidence could convict that person. Now, they say the reason for this is three out of five people that are in jail have not been convicted of any crimes. That's half a million people in jail. Every state has a, a certain percentage of that that they contribute to. Now, the Center for American Progress believes cash bail criminalizes poverty. The American Civil Liberties Union, I read their definition of cash bail to you earlier. It says cash bail allows people with financial means to purchase their freedom, while those without cash remain incarcerated. Criminalizes poverty. Rich people can buy their freedom. 
Then we look at what the Center for American Progress believes. They believe that the system affects people of color who have the odds stacked against them already. I guess they never heard of O.J. Simpson. He's black, but he's rich. So he got off. So maybe they're right. Maybe rich people can get off. But then that would also refute the idea that it's communities of color that are directly affected by the cash bail system. Maybe they just mean in general. Maybe they're not talking about O.J. Simpson. Maybe they're not talking about the Kobe Bryant rape trial. Maybe they're not talking about the countless black people who don't go to prison. Maybe they're not talking about those people. Maybe they're talking just about the poor black people because they're not interested in wealthy black folks. They're interested in poor black folks. That's what they said. According to Center for American Progress, studies show that pretrial detention can actually increase a person's likelihood of rearrest upon release, perpetrating an endless cycle of arrest and incarceration. So their solution to getting rid of arrests, incarceration, put them back on the street, in order to get rid of this cycle, we'll just eliminate the process by which we arrest and prosecute criminals. Then it'll go away. I mean, that's literally like sweeping dust under the rug. It's like as a kid when you would clean your room and you would just push everything under your bed. Hey, look, mom, the room's clean, but everything's just crammed under your bed or it's crammed in your closet. Like I, I used to do this. I'd put everything in my closet. I had a, I had like a, it was like two closets. They were connected internally, but externally there was like a little barrier in the middle. So I had two closet doors and I would keep one closed <laughs> and then I would go on the other side and I would just pile stuff in there. So like if you actually open the door, the thing would just, everything would collapse This is what they're doing. Oh, there's an endless cycle of arrest and incarceration. So if we just get rid of police, if we just stop arresting people, if we stop incarcerating people, if we stop prosecuting people and convicting people, who, by the way, a lot of the times need to be prosecuted, need to be put in prison, need to be taken off the street, need to be prevented from hurting other people. If we just get rid of that, then all the racial inequalities will disappear rather than addressing the root source of these problems, rather than addressing the real root source of homelessness or drug use or the breakdown of minority families, black people in particular, rather than addressing any of that, we'll just eliminate the system by which we take criminals off the street. Now, I, I, I don't know how people of color feel about this particular law. I do know that All the statistical data, all the studies, all the polls show that black communities want more policing. It's like 80% of black communities want more policing. A recent Gallup poll showed that 81% of black communities wanted more policing. The only people that don't want more policing and don't want more policing for black communities are white liberals, which is amazing to me. It's white people that don't want black communities to be safe, and they claim that they're going to make them safer by eliminating law enforcement, which is also comprised of not just white people, but Hispanics, blacks, Asians, you name it. So police are not unilaterally white. Some people, I guess, forget that. And they say, according to the Center for American Progress, your likelihood of arrest after release or rearrest 
increases the longer you're held in prison. Maybe it does. But getting rid of arresting people, getting rid of prosecuting people, getting rid of incarcerating people doesn't solve the problem. It just creates new problems. This is not reform. This is, this is not adjusting a broken system. This is breaking the system even more. That's what it's all about. The Safety Act also offers new standards for when police can use force. It requires officers to provide aid after using force. Pretty sure they already were doing that. Requires officers to intervene if other officers are unauthorized or using excessive force. Pretty sure that any moral person would be doing that as well. Prohibits police access to any military equipment surplus program or purchasing specific types of equipment. Well, I could almost agree with that. I don't know what the motivation behind it is. All I know is that it was the Democratic Party and Barack Obama who really opened the doors for police departments to access military equipment. And then under the Trump administration, we were told police were bad after Obama militarized them for eight years. That's all I know. The Safety Act also mandates the use of force reporting to FBI National Use of Force Database. Um, They're saying that it was voluntary before. Requires reporting of deaths in police custody and due to use of force. You notice that it doesn't require the reviewing of hours of body cam footage where police say, Mr. Floyd, if you're claustrophobic in the back of the vehicle, I'd be happy to roll down the window for you, sir. Can you please calm down so we can figure out what's going on here? doesn't show you the eight, ten minutes of that footage. doesn't mandate that anybody has to review that. It just ties the hands of police. And I'm sure if you read all 700 plus pages of this thing, it would, it would actually probably in some way, shape or form enact certain uh, revisions and certain types of, of changes that might be actually positive and good. Republicans will never admit that, but I'm sure that there's something in 700 pages that's good. Maybe I'm just an optimist. I don't know. I'm sure that there's something there that's good. But it's not just the Safety Act. It's not just the Safety Act. It's not just coming to a city or a state near you. Here, here in Pima County, they, they want to do the same thing. Uh, the state of Arizona wants to do the same thing. New York, California, other big states, other big cities want to do the same thing. Get rid of cash bail. So they're just getting rid of the incentive to come back to your trial, your court date. They're incentivizing crime and they're de-incentivizing law enforcement. And they say to get rid of the racial disparities, oh, we're just going to basically uh, eliminate the cycle of arrest and incarceration. Rather than dealing with the fact that maybe so many people are being arrested and incarcerated because they're actually committing crimes for which there might be solutions to. If it weren't for these kinds of policies that incentivize the communities and the breakdown of society, which leads more people to committing crimes. So what this cycle perpetuates is ironically a vicious cycle of the incentivizing and the legalizing of crime, which yes, disproportionately, they always say criminals are disproportionately affected based on skin color. What about the people who are the victims? Because you want to talk about the victims of crime, 94% of black people in the United States who are murdered are murdered by other black people, and it's usually in minority communities, and it's in places like Chicago. 
They don't want to talk about the people that are the victims of the crime. They want to talk about the people that are the perpetrators of the crime. And that's when you know you have a lawless, legalist system that is incentivizing and legalizing and lawfulizing criminal behavior and criminalizing legal lawful activity and de-incentivizing law enforcement. That's when you know that something is wrong. But on the surface, it all sounds good, right? Here's something else that sounds pretty good, perhaps. A lot of you may remember the 2008 housing market collapse. I was um, a couple of years removed from that. I was in real estate, and I learned a lot about it that I didn't know. A friend of mine taught a real estate class in Orlando, uh, Nick Cariotti, and uh, he taught me a lot of things about uh, 2008 that I did not know about. We actually talked about it a little bit in class. Um, I had my real estate license in Florida, didn't do anything with it. I ended up teaching the real estate class for a while. I uh, actually taught one broker class at one point. And, um, you know, there are so many elements that go into buying a home that for some people, regardless of what the market looks like, it might be a good time to buy. For other people, it might be a poor time to buy. According to Realtor.com, it's true that home prices are high in 2022. It's probably not a great time to buy, they say. At the current moment, home, uh, home buyers face a perplexing mix of realities. Mortgage rates are still up and inflation is still putting pressure on everyone's bottom line. But the medium listing price actually fell in August down from an all-time high of 450000 It's down to 435000 See, I personally can barely afford to pay rent. I'm not going to be able to afford to purchase a $435,000 home or a $450,000 home. Both of those prices are still pretty high for me. But the article goes on to say that um, sometimes it makes more sense to buy than rent. Logical. I agree with that. But buying a home is wholly a personal decision, and the right timing varies from buyer to buyer. So we can agree with that. It absolutely does. However, Bank of America is going to do something a little unorthodox. Bank of America is launching a mortgage with no down payment or closing costs. You think, well, that sounds great. Let me get in on that. Hold on. The reason for this mortgage is to, quote, promote home ownership in minority communities in five U.S. cities. Now, on the surface, great. We're going to help minorities get access to housing. But you notice that they're promoting home ownership in minority communities, which more often than not are more dangerous more violent, more prone to murder, gun violence, more prone to things like burglary, uh, robbery, theft, muggings. They're more prone to criminal activity. So you're trying to incentivize keeping black people, keeping minority people in minority communities by making it easier for them to get access to housing to live there. That's just the first thing. That's just the first part of this. You're, in, you're literally incentivizing people to live in dangerous communities, all under the guise of let's help these minority people get access to housing. Okay, so now the new program that Bank of America has is geared toward the first-time home buyer. So if you're a second-time home buyer, you could be included in this, but it's more so for the first-time home buyer. It includes neighborhoods in Charlotte, Dallas, Detroit, Los Angeles, and Miami. Now, I don't know about you, but
But if we're talking about not neighborhoods, but Miami or Los Angeles in general, I don't know much about Dallas. I know Detroit's a pretty poor city, but L.A. and Miami, you have to be pretty wealthy to be able to afford anything in city limits. So it doesn't matter what color your skin is. I mean, I rem- I'm pretty sure that Dwayne Wade had a pretty nice house down there in Miami when he played for the Heat. Still might have a nice house down there. Shaquille O'Neal had a house down there, too. He might still have a house down there. These are pretty wealthy black people. A lot of celebrities live in Los Angeles, a lot of black celebrities. They have really nice houses in Los Angeles. So it's not about segregation. It's not like black people are, it's not like Chris Rock can't buy a house in Los Angeles, right? It's not like the entirety of the Miami Heat basketball team can't buy a, a house in Miami. Most people that play in those leagues have multiple houses. So there's no segregation. If you're black, you can live in those communities. But the difference between the people that live in those communities and have the money to and the people that don't live in those communities because they don't have the money to, it's usually because when you look at the difference between the two, you have rich neighborhoods that tend to be cleaner and nicer and, and more safe and less crime, black and white. And you have poor communities that tend to have more trash, more garbage, more homelessness, more drug use, more criminal activity, because in those communities, there isn't enough or they haven't allocated the resources to clean those communities up or police have been de-incentivized to clean those communities up. And guess who also lives in those communities? White people also live in those communities. Do you know that white people also live in poor conditions? It's not just Hispanics or black people promoting that idea promotes that black people, Hispanic people and other people are poor and uneducated and unable to take care of themselves. And they need rich, powerful bankers to take care of them for them, which funny enough and interestingly enough, it was the big banks that ran the slave trade in the Atlantic and ran the slave trade in Africa, ran the slave trade in Arabia, ran the slave trade in China, big, powerful, rich families. And now the same banking empires want to help minorities get access to homes, but not in general, just in minority communities. So this is literally rich white people that want to help black people live in the ghetto. That's what this is. Thanks, Bank of America. According to Bank of America's head of neighborhood and community lending, this is a quote, our community affordable loan solution will help make the dream of sustained home ownership attainable for some, for more black and Hispanic families. And it's part of our broader commitment to the communities that we serve. Black and Hispanics, black and Hispanic families, according to Jun Zhu of CBS News, uh, or told CBS News, University of Indiana finance professor, black and Hispanic families typically don't have a large stash of cash on hand to fund a home down payment. So black people are just poor. So we're going to help the black people who are poor. What about the white people that are poor? What about the black people that are rich? This is really, really disgusting. I'll tell you more about it when we come back from break. I'm Ryan Gable. This is The Secret Teachings. It's more after this. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to The Secret Teachings. For more information on the show or to contact Ryan, visit thesecretteachings.info or email Ryan at rdgable at yahoo.com. Hey, this is John Peasy at johnpeasy.com, and I'm here with Ryan Gable from The Secret Teachings. So it's taken months, but my new book, Liberty Shrugged, is finally available. Nearly 700 pages with archived images. It will leave you fascinated and wanting more. 
See, hatred for America and the Constitution is based on misconceptions of history and the rule of law. Charges of racism, sexism, and bigotry don't hold up to history and context. They stem from nullifiers who wanted to replace the Constitution and maintain hierarchy, as with the Confederate Constitution, which aimed to preserve the institution of slavery. But racism was not the foundation of that institution. It was a final justification to defend an institution which had existed forever and for which Western civilization and colonialism was actually taking steps to end. Africans and Arabs organized slave trading far exceeding anything in the Atlantic, and some continue to this day. Also, a woman's role in household duties was as systemic as a man's role in the legislature or on the battlefield. Indian tribes, when they weren't at war with one another, were choosing sides with the Europeans. See, we can't address history from the air-conditioned seats of a progressive university and pass judgments on men, women, and events that we know nothing about. My book, Liberty Shrugged, attempts to dispel countless historical, cultural, and social myths in order to find an objective understanding of history, the present, and the future. It's Liberty Shrugged at www.thesecretteachings.info. I hope you'll get a copy today for yourself, for your friends, for your family. I think you'll really enjoy it. If anyone can hear this broadcast, I'm still on Earth. This is the frequency of Ground Zero Radio. Ground Zero with Clyde Lewis and The Secret Teachings with myself, Brian Gable. You could listen to this. And again, you know, people say David has no evidence. David has no evidence. I hate this channel. Or you could listen to The Secret Teachings with myself, Ryan Gable, five nights a week on Ground Zero Radio. Join us to explore the outer limits of history, symbolism, parapolitics, and more. We'll explore a little bit of everything, but don't take my word for it. I'm kind of like you. I'm the last of a dying breed, a generalist. That's The Secret Teachings, five nights a week on Ground Zero Radio. This is Kev Baker of The Kev Baker Show, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings with Ryan Gable. Thanks, Ryan. This is David Knight with thedavidknightshow.com, and you're listening to The Secret Teaching. Broadcasting from somewhere between the normal and abnormal. A collection of question marks. No reason, no explanation. Just a prolonged nightmare in which fear, loneliness, and the unexplainable walk hand in hand through the shadows. It's The Secret Teachings on Ground Zero Radio. Welcome back to The Secret Teachings. I'm your host, Ryan Gable. Thank you for joining us. Tonight, the legalizing of criminal activity and the criminalizing of legal, lawful activity, not with laws, but by both perception and policy that makes life more dangerous. Crime might be up in some places, but in context with 2019, it's in most places at the same level or even lower. Some places it actually is higher. In those places, crime has been incentivized. Law enforcement has been de-incentivized. Victims are not addressed. Criminals are glorified. We're being told that the cash bail system criminalizes poverty and affects communities of color primarily. Illinois is having a, uh, a backlash. People are suing. Counties, cities are suing the state of Illinois for what they're calling the purge law, which is the Safety Act, which basically allows anybody who has committed an act of burglary, aggravated battery, they fled or eluded the police, 
drug offenses, threatening a public official, drug-induced homicide, robbery, kidnapping, arson, second-degree murder, etc. If you've committed any of these crimes, you get pretrial release with no incentive to show up for your court date. And according to the Center for American Progress, they say that this system criminalizes poverty because it affects minorities and, quote, communities of color. In other words, they're saying that communities of color, they're saying that minorities live in poverty, that they are inherently criminals. You're supposed to think, well, they've been put there by the racist Republicans, right? They've been put there by the Nazis. They've been put there in those ghettos by evil white people. Yet you forget that it's the Center for American Progress or the ACLU promoting the idea that rich people, you're supposed to think white, rich people, you're not supposed to think O.J. Simpson, rich people can get out. Black people have to stay in, right? Well, I mean, poor people, right? That's, isn't that what Joe Biden said? Poor kids are just as smart, just as brilliant as white kids. So you're saying white people are inherently smart, black kids, Hispanic kids, poor kids. So there's, there's inherently minorities. Is that what you're saying? See, this whole idea that if there's a systemic racist issue in our country does not address the fact that within the education system, the people that do the best across the board everywhere are Asians. The last time I checked, Asians are not white. Asians tend to have the highest income ratio of any group in the United States. They tend to do better on exams. They tend to do better generally in school. And that's not because they're Asian. It's not because of the stereotype that Asians are better at this. It's because of the culture. Whether you agree with the culture or you disagree with the culture, it's because of the culture consequences, the punishment, and the reward of doing those things. So if there's systemic racism in education, doesn't really describe, doesn't really define or explain how Asians tend to always do better than both blacks and whites. Does that make Asians racist? doesn't really make any sense when you break it down, but Illinois has this law going into effect January 1st, 2023, and that's what it's supposed to do. And they're just referring to minorities as living in poverty, being poor, uneducated, and being criminals. You would think maybe that's just an accident that they faux pawed, Freudian slipped in suggesting that that's how those communities live. But then Bank of America is now offering zero down mortgages to minority communities. CBS had to change part of their article on this. CBS News on September 3rd said Bank of America offers zero-down mortgages in minority communities. Then they say, but the program, in the editor's note, is actually eligible to all borrowers based on their income and home location. So you see what they do here? They say, this is only for minorities, but actually, if you're white, you can also apply for it. So what's the point in saying that it's just for minorities? Is that to make Bank of America look good? Because it doesn't make them look good, especially when the article starts out and says, Bank of America, you know Bank of America... You know, they work with the news, these news outlets, too, with uh, with the rhetoric and the propaganda and their talking points. So Bank of America says we're launching a mortgage with no down payments or closing costs that aims to promote home ownership in five U.S. cities, but, quote, in minority communities. So let me get this straight. Big Bank of America 
big, wealthy, rich Bank of America with plenty of white people running it, want to help black people get zero-down mortgages. They want to help Hispanics get zero-down mortgages, but in minority communities. So you're literally incentivizing the living of these Hispanics, blacks, etc., in poor, impoverished, crime-ridden areas. Does anybody else see this, notice this? The new program is geared toward first home buyers, first-time home buyers, including neighborhoods in Charlotte, Dallas, Detroit, LA, and Miami. Notice it's not in Dallas, Los Angeles, Miami, Detroit, Charlotte. It's in neighborhoods around them. Now, Detroit might be a different beast. I don't know too much about Charlotte. I've not spent time there, but I've been to Dallas, been to LA, been to Miami. LA and Miami are really expensive cities. Pretty sure Dallas is too. I haven't spent a lot of time there. They're not helping people buy homes in Miami. They're helping them buy homes in the ghettos around Miami. You notice there's a difference. They're not saying, hey, if you're a minority, we're going to give you a house in Miami. They're saying, we're going to help you get a house in a ghetto around Miami. That's what they're telling you. According to A.J. Barkley, Bank of America's head of neighborhood and community lending, our community affordable loan solution will help make the dream of sustained, look at that word, sustained, homeownership attainable for more black and Hispanic families, and it is part of our broader commitment to the communities that we serve. Don't you serve all communities? Or as a Bank of America, as a, as a, as a bank, as, a, as an institution, as, a, as an entity, do you just serve the so-called minority communities by helping them to get homes in those communities that are already impoverished, that are already suffering from high crime. Communities that want more policing don't want crime because regardless of the color of your skin, you pretty much want your children to be educated. You want to be able to have a job to make enough to pay your bills. You don't want to have to fear for your life when you walk down the street, when you walk out of your home, when you go to the gas station to get gas. I'm pretty sure whether you're black, white, Hispanic, Asian, it doesn't matter. You want to live in a safe community. So to suggest that we should eliminate law enforcement from those communities, to criminalize victims, and to legalize criminal behavior, to de-incentivize law enforcement, and to incentivize crime, pretty sure that no community wants that. Unless where you're incentivizing the crime and de-incentivizing law enforcement, it's way away from the rich neighborhood that you live in. The article says from CBS, black and Hispanic families typically don't have a large stash of cash on hand to fund a home payment, down payment on a home, or closing costs. So Bank of America is removing those barriers, which will certainly help someone on the hunt for homes to acquire that which they're seeking. So people that don't have enough money for a down payment, people that don't have enough money for closing costs, people that don't have enough money to really look into buying a home, Bank of America wants to help them out. And they want to help them out by eliminating those barriers and giving them a zero down mortgage, which they probably can't afford in minority communities. Not in any community, just in minority communities. That's what they say, not me. Minority communities. So if someone doesn't have the money, see, this is just like with the gas issue. Can't afford gas, buy an electric car. Don't have closing costs or 
a home down payment that you could put up, well, we'll get rid of that. You still have the house. Is the house free? No. You still got to pay a mortgage on it, but it's a zero down mortgage in a community neighborhood that's more dangerous, more violent, more crime ridden, more impoverished. Okay, so you're going to give homes to people with no prerequisites except they have a different skin color and you're going to primarily house them in crime-ridden, drug-infested communities where people living there generally would like to not live in those conditions and you're going to incentivize housing people there based on the color of their skin by giving them homes that they can't afford And we know they can't afford them because they don't have the down payment. They don't have the closing costs. They don't have any money saved up anyway. So how are they going to pay the mortgages? Does anybody else notice this? The article goes on to quote Jun Zhu, who says, Jun Zhu is an Indiana University finance professor, If you have a program with no down payment and no closing costs, it can help minority families to fill the gap between available savings and upfront cash needed. Really? Because you just said that they don't have any cash. They don't have any stores of cash to be able to finance this. So how are they going to be able to pay their mortgages once you throw them in these houses? By the way, that idea that those communities are typically poorer, more impoverished, more uneducated, more crime-ridden, drug-ridden, trash-ridden. People say that that's an insult. People say that that's punching down. Well, why don't you go to one of those neighborhoods and ask the people living there if they would like to live in those communities? They might love their community. They might like their neighbors. But nobody wants to be afraid of being shot or stabbed or raped or murdered. Nobody wants to be afraid of any of that stuff. They want safe communities. So don't tell me that it's punching down to suggest that we should help elevate people out of these types of ghettos and communities rather than strategically place them there based on the color of their skin, as Bank of America wants to do. CBS goes on to say, to qualify for the program, applicants must seek to buy a home in one of the five cities and complete a U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development certified home buyer course Applicants won't need mortgage insurance after they've acquired the loan. Rates of homeownership vary dramatically across racial and ethnic groups thanks to differences in wealth and the legacy of historic discrimination. They actually say the legacy of historic discrimination. Now, they don't say slavery because the legacy of slavery as the result of current socioeconomic issues is patently absurd and 100% provable that that's not the reason that there are socioeconomic issues today. So they say a legacy of historic discrimination. We're going to go back to those socioeconomic issues here in a second. They say seven out of 10 white households own homes. Four out of 10 black households own homes. Five in 10 Hispanic households do. Well, let's think about that for a second. Seven in 10 white households. That means three in 10 households don't own homes. Pretty sure the number is actually bigger than that. That means six in 10 black households don't own homes. Now, is the goal to get people to move into homes they own that they can't afford in communities that are minority communities, or is the goal to help people get on their feet and stay on their feet and be able to afford the cost of living? 
there are differences in these communities. So three out of 10 whites might, white households might own homes or might not own homes, excuse me, seven out of 10 own homes, three out of 10 households don't own homes, four out of 10 black households own homes, six out of 10 don't. But perhaps there's a cultural difference. Perhaps black people would prefer to rent. Perhaps the three out of 10 white households that don't own homes would also prefer to rent. So you're just assuming that you have to own the home to be considered uh, well off or to be considered uh, equal. But you're just predetermining that white people, black people, Hispanic people need to do that to be successful. And you're also predetermining that those people, like myself personally, I think owning a home would be way too expensive for me at the time. For actually any point in my adult life, I'd still prefer to rent and live within my means. So I'm one of those three out of 10 who doesn't own a home. Does that make me like the six out of 10 black households? Why do those six out of 10 black households don't own homes? These are questions that need to be asked when we're talking about very divisive, racially charged things like this, because these types of policies and ideas and programs are inherently themselves very discriminatory, very racist. And as Bank of America says, they're not trying to get you a home, you know, in Los Angeles. They're not trying to get you a home there with the Fresh Prince, the Fresh Prince of Bel Air was. They're trying to get you a home in a minority community, which is impoverished, uneducated, and dangerous, where the people that live there typically don't want to live there because of those reasons. They might love their community and their neighbors, but they don't want to live there because of those conditions. That's why 81% in Gallup polls of those communities want more policing. And the only people who don't are the rich white people who live out of those communities. And likewise, the rich black people who live out of those communities. We we find a historical parallel here between the northern communities and the southern communities where southern communities would come north and the northern whites and blacks didn't want them to because they were crass, they were rude, they were violent, they were aggressive, they were dangerous, they were sexually promiscuous, they were usually not of the same moral system that the north was, they were um, uh, unable to obtain or to maintain employment or they didn't want to work at all. See, these are the stereotypes that we're supposed to think are these these terrible racist uh, ideas of black folks, but that's not black culture. That's actually white, Scottish, Irish, outskirts of, of England culture. That's what they call redneck culture. So this is what the Bank of America program does. And I'm sure that there will be few people who discuss that who will tell you that it's actually for everybody. But Bank of America is focusing on just the blacks and Hispanics and telling you they don't have money. They don't have uh, the ability to pay for these homes. So we're just going to help them get them and then they won't be able to afford them, which I'm pretty sure is exactly what lending houses and banks did, which led up to the housing bubble in 2008. They gave mortgages to people they knew couldn't afford them and they knew couldn't pay them back. And then the system collapsed and the banks, what did the banks do? They absorbed all of that real wealth. Once again, the issue is Federal Reserve, IMF, big banks. That's the greatest threat to equality. According to Marketplace.org last year, I found this article. Lenders are more likely to deny mortgage loans to people of color than to white people with comparable financial profiles. Now, they're not denying black people or Hispanic people or Asian people or Native American people 
homes entirely, they're denying percentages of them, just like they also deny white people percentage, a certain percentage of white people, those, those home loans. But then they admit in the article, they say there's huge disparities between blacks and whites and Native Americans and Hispanics and Asians and Pacific Islanders. But they say, but this, ev- this evidence we found of discrimination doesn't actually control for credit scores or any of the basic evidences or proofs that you would need to determine if a person would be eligible for the loan. So they're basically making up the discrimination and then telling you, we didn't actually find any evidence of this. We're, we, this is just what the algorithm says. We didn't, we didn't actually use credit scores or any of the background information we would normally use to see if someone was eligible for the loan. Totally disgusting. But hey, you know what? It's not just that. The Lancet, very prestigious medical journal, published a 45-page editorial just this past week called The Lancet COVID-19 Commission. We're jumping to COVID-19. Hold on a second, though. They warned that governments proved, quote, untrustworthy and ineffective in the pandemic response. Now, they're not talking about the hypocrisy of California's governor, Iowa's governor or any other governor like New York's governor. They said it was really Bolsonaro in Brazil and Trump in the United States that led to so many people dying. That's what they actually say in the report. They say what we saw rather than a cooperative global strategy was basically each country on its own. Now, we've done a couple of shows on this idea because we've seen panels, according to the New York Times, a pandemic response panel made up of Bush and Obama former officials want to overhaul the U.S. public health system. The CDC director also back in August of this year ordered the agency to overhaul based on their COVID-19 response. And part of that overhaul is creating a new equity office. So whether it's in health and the so-called pandemic or it's in housing or it's in something like um, the environment. The EPA has an environmental justice department. It's all about justice and equality, right? Let's listen to what the Lancet had to say here. The Lancet said, as a result, the virus ripped through the world in highly unequal ways, the panel concluded, with severe consequences for the most vulnerable. At least they mentioned, they did admit, they did mention among them children who suffered learning losses from disrupted schooling. Now, the children that suffered learning losses and the communities that were most affected and the communities and the people that were more segregated because of vaccines and masks were across the board black and minority communities who were segregated based on their decision to not get a COVID-19 vaccine or to not wear a mask. This is statistically provable in major cities and states. I even remember a headline. I was traveling through Florida Uh, I did a cross-country road trip last year, and I remember reading one of the news. I got a newspaper in Florida, and one of it it said, like, it was 40-something percent of black communities in Florida were rejecting the vaccines. Now, Florida is a different case because the state was kept open. I just remember reading that in a physical newspaper. But the same was true in most states, which chose to segregate, especially in major cities, people that didn't receive the vaccine or didn't wear a mask, which were predominantly minority, particularly black individuals. Whatever the reason for that is, we could debate, we could discuss. But we were segregating people based on their choice to get a vaccine or not. It's no different than segregating people based on the color of their skin. It's, 
it's sure a difference between not choosing to be this skin color and choosing not to get a vaccine. But when a large portion of the people choosing not to get the vaccine are of this skin color and you're segregating them based on that decision because of the history of what people with that skin color have experienced, like the Tuskegee experiments. Where do you think that same ideology resides? Where do you think that same ideology rests? They say the commission at the Lancet is calling for strengthening the UN's agency by giving it more financing and authority. And it also urges the creation of a new global health board to help the who make timely decisions. So basically they want to give total control to the world health organization and the UN Obama Bush panel uh, participants said back in June, they want to overhaul the U S public health care system. And the CDC director wants to overhaul the CDC to make an equity office for minority people. By the way, I mentioned this again, it's all part of the same beast. Senate Bill 1244, Civilian Climate Corps for Jobs and Justice Act, was introduced. It's not been passed. The bill establishes a Climate Corps program and generally revises benefits provided to National Service Program participants. That's the first line of the bill. It comes from Senator Markey of Massachusetts and Congress Lady Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. On his website, Cortez is listed as part of this proposal. Ed Markey website, it says this, back in April of 2021, a diverse and equitable group of 1.5 million Americans over five years will complete federally funded projects that help communities respond to climate change and transition to a clean economy. Civilian Climate Corps will reduce carbon emissions, enable a transition to renewable energy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's that first line there. A diverse and equitable group. Well, we know what that means in this modern world. It means people who are not white, right? People who are not white, a diverse and equitable group of 1.5 million Americans. Now, this bill was never passed. It was introduced in 2021, never passed. Couldn't get the votes for it. But funny enough, I have a copy of the Inflation Reduction Act. And here's what the Inflation Reduction Act says, page 699 through 700. Activities, environmental and climate justice block grants, climate justice, environmental justice. The EPA has this on their website. It says this community led air and other pollution monitoring, prevention and remediation and investments in low and zero emission and resilient technologies and related infrastructure and workforce development that help reduce greenhouse gas emissions and other air pollutants. In other words, related infrastructure and workforce development, infrastructure and workforce development, just like Senator Markey and Cortez say, a diverse and equitable group of, of, of millions of Americans working on programs for climate change for the Democratic Party. And this is what the Inflation Reduction Act actually says. Infrastructure and workforce development that help reduce greenhouse gas emissions and other pollutants, facilitating engagement of disadvantaged communities in state and federal advisory groups, workshops, rulemakings, and other public processes. They crammed that bill into the Inflation Reduction Act. And if you haven't caught exactly what the bill was about, which is now a law, they want to use minority communities to do labor for the Green New Deal. In other words, they are employing minority communities 
to perform what amounts to paid slave labor for the Democratic Party. It's a different Democratic Party today. I get that. I don't really care if it's the Republican Party. That's not the point. Lyman Trumbull, who authored um, uh, uh, basically in Lyman Trumbull uh, and it was like five or six other guys, Republicans were also Democrats and Republicans, Democrats, Republicans. These were the guys that led Congress even before Lincoln in abolishing the institution of slavery. So I get that the political parties are different, but when you're using the same ideology, you are inherently telling, you're telling people they are inherently oppressed like Calissa Wing Department of Defense Education Activity Chief, Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer said, we are not the majority. We don't have power. Telling black people they are not empowered, that you have to be in the majority to be empowered. That is so absurd. By that definition, the government has no power. The government and government officials are the minority. This woman is like the pastors that worked for Margaret Sanger to convince black people to sterilize themselves and their families. Environmental justice, giving home loans, zero down mortgages to people of color so they can live in ghettos, according to Bank of America, taking away incentive for people to return to their court date under the guise of Cash bail affects communities of color because it affects uh, people that are impoverished and it makes them criminals. What you're doing is you are inciting the idea that these communities and these people are poor, impoverished, uneducated, perhaps even illiterate. And these are the people that are living in conditions of crime and filth and homelessness. And they are living in conditions in which when you can't afford to put gas in your car, or barely can afford it, and you have to cut back on other necessities, these communities are the communities that are hurt the most. And these are the communities that are hurt the most just from those gas prices rising, which of course has to do with the climate change transition. And we're told that if we don't change the way that we're living to deal with climate change, it's going to disproportionately affect minority communities. But actually, in making the change, you are directly affecting those communities. Thomas Sowell, the black scholar, said the post-1960s black identity intolerance promoted by white intellectuals as well as black leaders and activists is a painful parallel to the post-1830s intolerance among white Southerners against anyone who questioned slavery in any way. In other words, slavery was not the cause of these socioeconomic problems. The greatest reduction in poverty among blacks occurred before the civil rights revolution of the 1960s. The greatest um, uh, 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 change in the difference between black and white income occurred before the 1960s. Black families were more together. There were more marriages between blacks uh, and black communities than even whites directly after slavery. It was the ideology behind the institution of slavery and the justification and the death throes of that institution that justified slavery based on race. And it was those ideologies that are behind the modern progressivism movement to prevent these groups and these people from rising out of terrible conditions. And yet it's not just those groups because it's also white people that live in those groups, just like the white so-called rednecks of the South who were also disliked in the North. History is much more complex, yet it's much simpler to understand. 
We recognize that so many of the things that we're told, so many of the things that are said today are just about emotion and psychology. You're not supposed to think about it. You're not supposed to think. You're not supposed to question. I want you to think and I want you to question, including everything that I do and everything that I say. If you have anything that you'd like to share with me, rdgable at yahoo.com. Please visit our website, thesecretteachings.info. Subscribe to the archive. Buy a copy of one of my books. If you enjoyed tonight's show, you'll really like my new book, Liberty Shrugged. Otherwise, stay safe, stay informed, stay healthy. Talk to you on the next broadcast. <laughs>